This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You lost all constitutional rights the moment you walked through that door. When the judge sat down there, I sentenced you to 10 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. You walked in that door, you was a number. And the inmate understood that. six guys that were sitting in a place smoking a joke and a drinking coffee pretty quick they'd have to plan in there to, to get under your skin some way or, or try to figure a way out welcome back ladies and gentlemen to another episode of behind gray walls a podcast about the old idaho state penitentiary and the men and women who worked and resided here my name is anthony and i'm chatting with sky hey sky hi as I told you before we started recording, I'm doing my best Harry Potter impression in my parents' coat closet under the stairs. They are about to leave, but if you hear them uh, in the background, they're they're just getting ready uh, to leave. So apologies for that, but so excited to be back with you. How were how yeah. how was your break? And more importantly, tell us about your awesome trip to Eastern State. That. Eastern State trip was really incredible to just to see all of the, you know, American history, go to Ben Franklin's grave and the Liberty Bell, which I, you know, have a little Christmas ornament that I just hung on our tree, a little Liberty Bell. Um, And then, of course, Eastern State, the oldest historic prison in the country and what most prisons were based after. It was really incredible. The uh, The walls are like 30 feet tall, and, and it's about 10 acres, where the old Idaho Penitentiary is about four and a half acres within the main ground. So it was amazing. It was huge. I went to their Halloween events as well, which were just over the top. There were five different haunted houses. There were three like bar areas. There was a fair chance food area where recently incarcerated or formerly incarcerated individuals sell goods and products and food. And that was such a cool philosophy and concept. And yeah, I came back so inspired. I'm hoping the Halloween events next year at the Old Pen are going to be over the top uh, just from the inspiration I had from going there. I bet. uh, I went to uh, Eastern State. Uh, My family and I took a big trip to uh, like Philadelphia, New York, and we went to Eastern State, which which my family uh, very graciously did, mostly because of me. Um, I was not uh, quite in depth with uh, the podcast or or um, really stuff at the pen as I am now, but um, it definitely became one of those things where my family was like, "Okay, we're leaving," and I was like, "Okay, I'll just meet you guys where we're going next," and they were like, "No, that's not really how it works," and I was like, "But I want to stay." Um, so it's a very, very cool place. I was only there for about three full days and I spent basically two full days at Eastern State. It was just so much fun. It's so cool. The staff there, everybody's so passionate and I felt like I was at home, you know, Mm -hmm. it was just like, like our staff, everybody's just so passionate. 
they love what they do. They love telling the history of that site and just like my people. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. I'm so happy yeah. for you. Yeah. How about you? What have you been up to? What have I been up to? Mostly, well, so I have officially started on my dissertation. Um, I'm on page, I think I made it onto page 23. Um, whether it's any good or not is, is a different question, but it's, there are words <laughs> on paper. So we'll take it. And, uh, and then I've just been, um, an absolute international football nerd and watching the heck out of the World <laughs> Cup, man. I was just going to say, how are the footballers? Oh, they're so I have good. Not been watching. Uh, yeah. In fact, there is a game in an hour. So if we could actually just like wrap it up really quickly. No, just okay. kidding. No, no, no. All just right. kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> I, we can, we can, we can record, thankfully. So, um, but yeah, the games just are like four that. hours long, right? They so. are, they're two hours. <laughs> they're two hours long. American football games are four hours long. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I have watched almost every single match. There's eight groups. Each group has four teams. And so there's a group round where every team is guaranteed three games to play one, every team in their group. And in the third uh, round of games, to make sure that no team is like cheating and using a tactic that's like to make sure they score or to make sure the other team doesn't score to like go through or not go through if that makes sense they play both games at the same time and so my dad and i went to buffalo wild wings and like made them change the tv so that we could have both games side by side while we were like <laughs> eating our wings i was like man this is this is as hardcore as it gets i feel like so <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, been, that's pretty much what I've been doing is, is, uh, having soccer on and typing away and, uh, that's, that's it. Getting ready for, for nice. Christmas season. Yeah, that's right. I, I've got a little Hallmark party I'm doing with my friends, uh, right after we record today. So. <laughs> like you're going to watch a bunch of Hallmark movies? Yeah, we just laugh. We just poke fun at totally. it, uh, at all the Hallmark movies. It's it's a good time. <laughs> there was a tweet that went around that was just like, I fell asleep while I was watching a Hallmark movie the other day, and when I woke up, it took me 30 minutes to realize I was watching a completely different Hallmark movie. <laughs> it's the best. That's <laughs> so funny. Well, that sounds so fun. Yeah. Well, good. Oh. Well, I don't know how festive our stories are today, but should we get started? I think we should. Okay. Let's do it. I think uh, since right. since you are uh, back after your two-episode hiatus, why don't you start us off? Yeah, I am starting with A.L. Sparling, number 2363. And my sources were, of course, his inmate file, the Idaho Daily Statesman from NewsBank, Newspapers.com, Library of Congress Chronicling America, an Idaho State Historical Society reference article on trees in early Boise, and another article on the Rocky Bar Mines, an Idaho State Historical Society History article on Ella Carte Reed by our state historian Hannah Laurie Hine, and another article titled The History and Restoration of the Weber Grand Piano by Micah Hetherington. And I encourage all of you listeners to visit the link in our description and subscribe to our monthly newsletter. There's all kinds of fascinating stories about Idaho history in that. Findagrave.com memorials for the Carte family a Wikipedia article on the village Balcombe in England and the history of Australia, and an article on Reed X blog called The Real War Horses of America. And I also found a, a treasure trove of newspapers from Australia from a website called Trove. So, A.L. Sparling was born in Balcombe, England in 1882. 
Or if ancestry documents that uh, you and I analyze are correct, he may have been born William Arthur Labuschere Sparling a decade earlier on July 15th, 1872. Or it was Arthur L. Sparling, or maybe it was Charles Sparling, or it was Charles Paul, P-A-U-L-L. This is a difficult one, I will say. Um, Balcom is what he listed as uh, his home on his intake record, and it's a village just about 30 miles south of London, uh, Cornwall, England. And it comes from the Cornish Roman name meaning mining place camp. So you can imagine the type of things that Arthur would have grown up around if, in fact, he was born there. And Arthur was a member of the Episcopal Church, where he received religious instruction. He left home at the age of 16, around 1898, according to his intake. And he said he attended college, including seven years of education, and his job was agriculturalist. So we'll get to that here in a moment. Now, the ancestry records, <laughs> that's uh, you and I, you helped me a lot in, in doing some of this research here, mm-hmm. and... You know, if they were correct, the Sparling family left England on March 31st, 1900, on a trip called the Jumna and traveled to Australia. They arrived in Queensland, Australia on May 29th, 1900, which, you know, it's about 60 days, you know, about two months of of traveling, which is incredible to think about Mm -hmm. on a ship. And according to most accounts, Arthur was a resident. I'm going to call him Arthur throughout the whole episode. This may or may not be his actual name, mm-hmm. <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, he was a resident of Australia for 15 years, according to his own words, before traveling to the United States. And this actually, 1900 around that time, is right when the separate colonies in Australia, like the United States did before, they were grouping together to become states under the Federation of Australia. So Arthur would have been living in Australia when the six colonies signed the proclamation on January 1st, 1901, creating the Commonwealth of Australia and establishing the federal government that actually tied the whole continent together. It's kind of a cool thing for him to have witnessed. Several accounts about Arthur noted that he was a member of the staff of the London Times under the name Charles Paul, as I said. And he appeared before the agriculture organizations all throughout the world and gave presentations and uh, served as kind of a reference for people on coastal towns. And we'll see more of that in a moment. Now, journalism may have been what brought him to Australia here in the first place, right, as Australia is becoming basically its own country. He appeared in Victoria, Australia in the 1904 city directory, listing his occupation as a share broker. With his background in agriculture, he may have been connected to shares and securities and land and agricultural industries in Australia. And research for this time period, of course, is pretty difficult to verify. Plus, it's international, so I still have a lot of questions Mm -hmm. about his time in Australia. But I did find... This trove, as I said, of Australian digitized newspapers on a website called trove.nla.gov.au. So it's kind of a Library of Congress chronicling America, but for Australian Mm. newspapers, which was so handy and so helpful. From what I could find, Arthur's first time inside a jail cell came about when he accidentally wrote a no-account check in August 1906 for 10 British pounds from a man named James Wimble at the Menzie Hotel in Melbourne, Australia. He spent a little over a week in jail, 
after being paid out these 10 pounds for this check that he thought actually was legitimate. The trial and the case against him was dropped, and he was freed after several individuals appeared before the judge declaring his innocence and that it was somebody else's mistake writing the wrong name on this legitimate check. So in that, he was described as being 25 years old and a tutor. So I don't know if he was, you know, working at the local university or, mm-hmm. or what he may have been doing. Then an article appeared in the January 23rd, 1907 Evening Telegraph, a Queensland newspaper titled Fiction, Cornishman on Australia, De Rougement Out Rougemonted by the Lecturer to the Commonwealth of Australia. <laughs> Sweet. And, wait, wait, wait. Can you read the first? What was a De Rougement on? Out Rougemented by the Lecturer to the Commonwealth of Australia. This is a name, De Rougement. R-O-U-G-E-M-E-N-T, uh-huh. outrougemented oh by the gosh. lecturers of the That's Commonwealth amazing. of Australia. Yeah. I love that. It cracked me up. It is comparing Arthur to this man named Henry Louis Grin, who went by the name of Louis de Rougement. He was a Swiss explorer who wrote widely in British newspapers and lectured about his alleged travels around the world, including New Guinea and Australia. Most of it was made up, and readers quickly discovered he was a con man. The June 1899 Wide World magazine is quoted as saying, Truth is stranger than fiction, but derugement is stranger than both. The, the whole article itself is pretty funny, and it pokes all these jabs at, at Arthur Sparling, who they call the federal lecturer in England. Oh. <laughs> so the article, it, it takes up almost two entire columns, is a transcript of Arthur Sparling's write-up on the Cornish Post and Mining News, this Cornish newspaper. And he documents that most miners he came across in Australia were actually from Cornwall. They were Cornishmen, known for mining tin and copper, of course, where he was from. And he documents the bustling mining communities in Mount Morgan, but also talks about the morality issues at Charters Towers, who, which he describes as a hard-drinking community, quote, But you must not blame them too much. Morality should be estimated according to the intensity of the climate, end quote. So he's talking about how hot it is. And so, of course, morality is going to come into question, uh, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, the hotter the hotter it is, the more likely you are to commit to be immoral, I guess, because it's just like so hot you will do anything to not be hot. I don't know. Listen, this is why I, I, I prefer the cold over the heat is because heat makes you do crazy things. <laughs> that is true. I agree with that. <laughs> He, he ends the write-up, and I think this is the problem for these Australians reading his, his write-up. Quote, The Cornishman is often sneered at by others and is nicknamed Cousin Jack. But instead of what Subercat being a course for shame, he should glory in it. It is in the fact that they stick together that their strength lies. It is said that if a Cornishman and an Australian have a shop of the same kind and in the same town, all the Cornish miners will deal with the Cornishman. I sincerely hope that it may long continue so, and that Cousin Jack will long be a distinguished name of the Cornishman, end quote. So it just seems that they thought it just so funny that this guy from England, this federal lecturer of England, is there, you know, speaking about and being a professional in understanding everything that goes into Australian mining. Mm. And I found... An ancestry boat passenger list from 1911 of a 38-year-old William Sparling traveling to Melbourne from London with his 29-year-old wife, Margaret, and 10-month-old daughter, Rosemary. Again, 
William Sparling, is that his name? I don't know if this is him. Mm -hmm. But soon after arriving, this individual named William Arthur Labouchet Sparling had a warrant out for his arrest based on information by a man named Walter Ambler from April 3rd, 1911, that Sparling had defrauded him of 260 British pounds for the Surrey Land and Trading Company selling shares in a company that didn't exist. Now, when William Arthur Sparling was called to court, he did not show up, and it was suspected that he had fled Melbourne for another state in Australia or had left the continent. And I only bring this up because it seems closely connected to what Arthur would do when he finally came to the United States. So, it was this him? Is this what drove him out of Australia? I don't know. Arthur noted that he arrived in the United States via the port of San Francisco, and I couldn't find any port records for this. I, I went through all of the ancestry and all of the California port authority records and could not find an Arthur Sparling anywhere. He traveled north to Oregon, and Arthur told the people of Oregon that he was a representative from Australia's Agricultural Commission. He was on a mission. Quote, the Australian Agricultural Commission is seeking information on, on this subject for application to its own problems in the development of arid lands. Great reclamation projects are underway, according to Mr. Sparling, and millions of acres of Australian land are to be thrown open to homesteaders and settlers within the next few years. The Australian government wishes to benefit by the experience of other nations, end quote. The first account of him in the United States actually comes from the Gazette Times in Hepner, Oregon, on March 5th, 1914, in which he spoke at the IOOF Hall, the Fraternal Independent Order of Oddfellows, and his speech was well received, being delivered, quote, in conversation style altogether. He is forceful and logical, and the address was entertaining and instructive. We might be inclined to think that the speaker was somewhat severe in some of his criticisms of conditions in our section, and yet it must be recognized that he was speaking from the experience gathered from a period of about 20 years of struggle and hardship in overcoming the difficulties incident to the development of a new country, and he knows whereof he speaks, end quote. Everything around Arthur is so eloquent. The speech encouraged Hepner farmers and businessmen to work together for the common good and develop the Hepner Creamery and Cold Storage Company. And Arthur started to sell stock to develop a factory, quote, for the manufacture of butter and curing and packing of bacon, end quote. And by April 1914, so just a couple months later, enough investors came together to develop the company with $20,000. Arthur and prominent local dairyman O.J. Cox and John Whiteman were the chief organizers, and they split the company into all of these different shares. And so Arthur started to travel around the country selling these shares. And by the end of March, he was actually traveling around town with Mayor Smead to shore up the rest of the capital. Uh, they were struggling to get local farmers on board. A month after this meeting, Arthur signed a charter published in the newspaper that listed 43 different shareholders. He thanked all the farmers, quote, for their many kindnesses, end quote, as well as the merchants and other townspeople who welcomed him into the town to start the business. By July, Arthur was complete, so he thought, with his work organizing the charter and installing the president of this creamery, W.B. Barrett. He owns 200 shares in this company and was paid and thanked for a job that he had done so far, and now it was his time to get the rest of the investors. 
This success did come with some detractors, though. During the fall of 1914, an article appeared in the local paper that noted that Arthur was traveling to Stanfield, Oregon, about 45 miles north, and attempting to develop another creamery in direct competition with the one he had just developed in Hepner. Arthur wrote into the editor, quote, those who know me give me credit for having more brains than the employee of the syndicate promoting and financing the publication of the Herald does. The false statements that I was in Stanfield is of itself quite harmless and merely indicates habitual and indifferent inaccuracy. But the statement that I am interested in or would in any way be a part to the waste of $6,000 in an endeavor predestined to failure is extremely distasteful, end quote. And he lays out the amount of cream and butter already being made in that area and how there's no reason to even develop another creamery in that area. And a week later, he wrote another letter condemning the editor of The Herald, calling him selfish for publishing that paper without, quote, due consideration for the wishes of the community. It is furthermore a generally accepted theory that any person who would make use of the editorial chair for the paying of private grudges and in order to vent his spleen upon private individuals through the medium of his journal shall be deemed a person unfit to occupy the chair or even to be employed in any capacity upon the staff of a respectable paper, end quote. We have so many quotes from Arthur, and he is such an eloquent and charismatic speaker. People just gravitate towards him. And in, in that statement, did he say, vent his spleen? Yes, that's vent yeah, his spleen. That's so interesting, because I think the spleen has always been seen as like um, a, a, an emotional, like it's from way back in the day, that it was like where your emotions mm. came from. Um, it's like yeah. all the emotional, uh, you know, stuff gets stored in there. That's so interesting. Okay, cool. Yeah, it seems the message was heard as Arthur continued to travel and do business in and around Oregon. And World War One, which began earlier in the year on June 28, 1914, led to Arthur actually being commissioned by the English government to buy cavalry horses from the county and send them to England to aid in the war effort. Quote, according to Mr. Sparling, his instructions are that the horses must be from 15 to 16 hands high, and I had to look this up, it's about 5 feet to 5 feet 3 inches high, weigh from 900 to 1,200 pounds, not leggy and without round joints, and must be broken quiet to harness and saddle. Whites and grays are entirely barred, which is probably because they couldn't be camouflaged on the battlefield. Out of 182 horses recently assembled, here, the English buyers would accept only 15 animals, end quote. And according to Redex, this division of Newsbank, which hosts the Idaho Daily Statesman newspaper catalog, the United States actually sent nearly a million horses to European forces, uh, mostly British, during the war. And in 1917, when the United States entered the war, nearly 200,000 more horses were taken overseas. Of those, 200 horses returned to the United States at the close of the war. Whoa. The Redex page highlights an Idaho statesman quote from 1916, which I thought was just so fun. Quote, the little western pony may not be up to cavalry standards, but he is a good little Ford and will get you there and be up and about the next morning. And if a cactus is the only food, he will take it and smile, leaving the regulation packard waiting for the oats to catch up. End quote. So it's just kind of kind of fun to think about Arthur serving as this representative for English buyers, you know, buying and packaging and 
shipping horses overseas. Also, I love that the description of the Western horse compared to like the Eastern horse is so similar to how people would describe people in the West versus people in the East. Like people in the West and horses are the West are just like, they are like rough and tumble. They'll make do, (laughs) you know, this is why they're out there settling this country. And oh, all those dandies in the East, they have to wait for their oats. (laughs) That's so uh, amazing. I love this. We still think that way, don't That's we? That's true. It's true. I <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> even the 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 uh, people down in Texas who think they're the West, I'm like, please, you're Southern at the best, and there's an entire country further west of you, and also we're better. I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. Some things never change. That's <laughs> true. Uh, in December 1914, Arthur actually developed this lecture called Economic and Social Problems of Eastern Oregon as Being Worked Out in Australia. That's the longest TED Talk title I've ever seen. This is, it's like a book that he's, yeah, yeah. the, the titles back then are, you're just like, so did you write the whole book in the title or is that just the title? <laughs> right. And he notes that he was known, quote, as Charles Paul all throughout Great Britain and her overseas processions, end quote. So this is the first time where he is open about saying, yeah, I go by Charles Paul when I've been doing this agriculture stuff across the world. But the hours I spent looking up Charles Paul, and I think I found one thing, and I don't know if I, that even counts. So, But the uh, lecture is very well advertised for all men to make their life worthwhile. Quote, whether you are a professional man, merchant, farmer, clerk, laborer, or housekeeper, it is what you know that counts. Every man and woman should know about what is going on in the neighborhood where they live, end quote. And this lecture was set for December 18th, 1914 in Pendleton, Oregon, and they were selling tickets for 25 cents a ticket. Acting Mayor Dyer actually opened with a speech, and Judge S.A. Lowell and members of the school board were in attendance. And before the evening presentation in the Oregon Theater, Arthur spoke at the local high school on the history of Australia and kind of got a next generation of possible investors in line by doing that. High school teachers were invited with the superintendent to attend these lectures that evening. And in a quote from Arthur in the Oregon Daily Journal on the 28th of February, 1915, he noted that Australian coastal farmers were more proficient in their industry than American farmers. But, quote, in the interior, on the irrigated and semi-arid lands, the American farmer is the best in the world, gets more out of soil than the agriculturists of any other nation, and is a better student of modern farming methods, end quote. So he, he kind of, from his own experiences on Australia and England, uh, he's saying, you know, man, the United States has really figured out this irrigation business. I couldn't find any reviews on the lecture, but three days later, an article came out in the East Oregonian that a suit had been filed against Arthur by M.D. Deerdorf for the collection of, quote, sums aggregating a little more than $20, end quote. So basically, I lent Arthur $20, and he has not paid me back, so I'm going to court against him. And actually, it's also said that Deerdorf represented several others that Arthur owned money to. Arthur paid them off, and the suits were dismissed, and it noted that Arthur felt the creditors were a, quote, little precipitate in their action, end quote. According to newspapers, Arthur regularly borrowed small amounts of money from several people, seems to be the first time someone actually held him accountable, and he began wearing out his welcome. 
Later, the Lagrand Times would note, quote, Paul, or Sparling, as he was known, was considered while here to be a remittance man. That he was short of funds while in this vicinity is attested to by the frequency with which he borrowed small sums from his acquaintances, end quote. So he's pretty well known of being a very charismatic, lovable guy. He could fit in anywhere, and usually as he was walking out the door, he would bum a $20 bill from somebody, <laughs> which is quite a bit of money. Arthur spoke in January 1915 in Helix, Oregon, for the Farmers Union. The Lagrand Observer had a write-up soon after in which Arthur denied being attached to any union or farm organization. He noted that despite speaking for several unions and cooperatives, he wasn't a member of any of the organizations he spoke for. He basically said, you know, I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm freelance. He left Oregon in early 1915 and began making his rounds in Idaho among all these social circles. And he moved to Weezer, Idaho, where he lived on Liberty Street with his wife and child. Who they are, I have no idea. I could not find any information about them in all of this research. Later, a uh, write-up in the Weezer Signal would note, quote, while practically a stranger in this city, Mr. Sparling has been making it his home for the past several months, and Mrs. Sparling lives on West Liberty Street. As a driver, Mr. Sparling is known in this county as daring to the point of recklessness, and his 72-horsepower Mitchell, he has made some exceedingly fancy marks between Weezer, Boise, and Baker City, end quote. They're saying, yeah, he's that reckless driver who's been whipping around town. Yeah, he's got he's a uh, hot rodding out there. Yeah, with seventy two horsepower vehicle. Oof. Oof. Oh, that's a Back lot. Back in nineteen <laughs> the nineteen twenties, that's a it's a solid vehicle. Yeah. <laughs> He was actually a, a big fan of tennis and was like going to all these tennis tournaments around Twin Falls and he uh kept crossing paths with these very wealthy folks. Posing as Charles Paul, he approached a woman named Miss Lena D. Manhard, and he told her he represented and promoted the Parkland and Livestock Company in Oregon. He told Lena that he was selling her $3,000 in stock in this company, and he told her that the company owned 21 farms near Baker City, Oregon, at a place he called The Park, near Medical Springs. He told her the company owned the 12 houses that stood on the land and half the interest in the nearby store and $60,000 in wheat had been grown on the land that was ready for market. Lena saw the chance for a big return on investment and on January 18, 1915, she gave Arthur a $50 bill followed by a check for $250 and another $1,200 check from the Black Hawk Coffee and Spice Company located in Iowa. This is where she had a lot of her investment money. So remember that, the Black Hawk Coffee and Spice Company in Iowa. Now, Arthur kept moving on. He kept making deals with other people, and he went to Boise, where he crossed paths with prominent young professional Ross B. Carte Jr., Ross was working as assistant professor of zoology or entomology and comparative anatomy at the University of Idaho. He was also the son of the prominent Boise Carte family, and this name might be familiar to you if you have visited the Idaho State Museum and seen the 1878 Carte Weber Grand Piano on display. It's such a beautiful piano, and I've been very lucky to be able to play it for a few events for our agency. Ross's grandfather, Lafayette, actually came to the West and was this very successful engineer, surveyor, and he built the first sawmill and quartz mills in Rocky Bar, Idaho. He 
came to Boise in 1866, where he's appointed as the territory's first surveyor general. And he laid out initial point near Cuna that I've mentioned in a previous season. And Lafayette actually purchased 24 acres between Grove and Myrtle, 3rd and 5th Streets in Boise, and developed all these different trees and shrubs here in the valley, serving as a nursery for many species of trees and actually truly making Boise the city of trees, all while fulfilling his official duties for the territory. When he died on September 2nd, 1891, all Boise businesses actually closed down, and Lafayette, he had several successful children as well. Uh, his daughter, Ellie Carte-Reed, actually worked as a librarian for the Idaho State Historical Society and became the second director of the agency between 1921 and 1931, second to the first director, who was uh, Idaho pioneer John Haley, who the town Haley, Idaho, is named after. Lafayette's son, Ross Sr., became a prominent architect and surveyor in his own right and designed the U.S. government hospital in the Philippine Islands at Manila between 1912 and 1916. He was also married to John Haley's daughter, Liana, and they had Ross Carte Jr., who Arthur Sparling had befriended in the spring of 1915. Now, I have to thank our staff, Micah Hetherington, and state historian Hannah Laurie Hine for compiling all of the information on the early Carte family. And I encourage all of you to subscribe to our newsletter for more Idaho history. It's important to understand this connection and the importance of the Carte family before what happens next. So Ross Jr. was on a vacation from the university to visit his grandparents, Mr. and Mrs. John Haley, in Boise. And he and Arthur crossed paths. They hit it off. And sometime between May and June 1915, the two young men actually traveled together to Salt Lake City, Utah, where Ross Sr. and Leona Carte were living. And Arthur had an office in the judge building representing the ranch managers and trustees company in Salt Lake. He convinced Ross to go in with him on all these different arid lands in Idaho. And the prospects were good. Irrigation was improving every year. And on August 6, 1915, as they were leaving Salt Lake at about 6 p.m., with Arthur behind the wheel of his small roadster, they were on the highway between Salt Lake and Ogden at 10th North and 2nd West when the car skidded on some dust as they rounded a curve and the vehicle lurched. It ejected Arthur and Ross as the vehicle flipped on its side. A car salesman was behind them when it happened and quickly grabbed both men and drove them to St. Mark's Hospital. Ross Carte was unconscious and quickly went into surgery for a fractured skull. Arthur was extremely bruised and, quote, crushed about the face and body but did not lose consciousness, end quote. The next day, Ross Carte died at St. Mark's Hospital. Arthur immediately went on the offense against the city of Salt Lake. He had this full speech that was transcribed by a journalist that demanded an investigation into the road conditions. He blamed the wreck on the railway lines, which were high above the street, making them a constant source of danger. He says, quote, The knowledge that it was caused by carelessness, by greed, by graft, and by absolute disobedience to the laws which govern public safety in all parts of the civilized world makes Ross's loss more bitter and harder to bear. Together, we came from Ogden eight weeks ago in the same car, and together we remarked on entering Salt Lake City how badly the streetcar tracks were laid, end quote. And he talks about the safety code and how Salt Lake is at fault and ends the diatribe. Quote, 
that more accidents have not happened on this road is marvelous, and that such secrecy has been maintained with regard to those who have occurred is, to say the least, sickeningly suspicious, end quote. Ross Carte was brought back to Boise and laid to rest next to his brother, Lafayette Carte, who's taken from their grandfather, in the Masonic Cemetery down here at the end of Warm Springs, the Pioneer Cemetery there. The funeral and ceremony were described in the Idaho Statesman as impressive with floral offerings described as, quote, among the largest ever seen at any funeral, end quote. And one item included a large wreath from Arthur Sparling. Now, two days before the accident, a newspaper article appeared in the Courier in Waterloo, Iowa, printing a notice from Orlane D. Manhard, plaintiff versus A.L. Sparling. The notice was printed on August 4th, 11th, 18th, 25th. The car crash was deemed an accident, and at the end of the month on August 26th, a story appeared in Hepner Organ's The Gazette Times titled, Committee has rather poor success in selling creamery stock. Farmers roundabout Hepner slow to take stock in enterprise. Hepner businessmen so far have taken majority of the stock. Committee thoroughly canvassed territory tributary to Hepner and report shows little success. So this dream Arthur had in establishing a creamery in Hepner with his 200 shares, which was the second highest amount, was dwindling. and His failure in securing enough shares was leading to resentment. In September, the notice from the Iowa company finally caught up to Arthur. A warrant was put out for his arrest by the probate judge in Twin Falls. He was being charged with obtaining money under false pretenses. Arthur turned himself into police in Boise on September 10th. Then he gave his word to police and left Boise on his own volition and headed straight to Twin Falls with his attorney, Fremont Woods. He was still severely injured from the wreck with Ross Carte a month earlier and wore a sling on his arm. Uh, Judge Wood did note that Arthur was most likely too incapacitated from the wreck and that the charge was probably due to, quote, the outgrowth of the inability of Mr. Sparling to attend to business during the past month on account of that injury, end quote. So the, even the judge is saying, you know, he's, he's injured, so that's probably why this business deal hasn't come through. Arthur didn't furnish the bond and sat in the Twin Falls County Jail awaiting trial. The company actually didn't own the land or have any sort of written agreement. It was in the preliminary stage and organized, but not even incorporated. Arthur tried to defend himself, saying that the money was paid for and stock in the corporation to be formed, but that Oregon was a blue sky state that, quote, sale of 50% of a corporation's stock is required before the concern can incorporate that the company is now in the process of formation and that the stock will be duly issued according to contract, at which time Miss Manhard will receive the amount of stock subscribed to her, end quote. But uh, he had been using the money that she had given him for his own personal travel and work, so that's where the problem lies. The trial was set for November 1st, 1915. On October 29th, Arthur put in a plea of not guilty. Due to Arthur's reputation, there was considerable attention because, quote, Sparling spent some time during the summer here, and that was given considerable attention socially, end quote. Postmaster South, who actually owned the store that Arthur said the company owned half of, went to Twin Falls to partake in the trial, and he told the authorities that he had secured uh, verbal options about this in Medical Springs, 
but never was actually given a down payment for anything. And so, quote, he thought the deal had fallen through and nothing more was thought of the matter until the Idaho official was there recently making quiet investigations, end quote. So, you know, maybe because of his injury, he didn't return and give the money to the man, you know, kind of in starting the contract work. When the jury returned after 21 hours of deliberation, they found A.L. Sparling guilty. Part of the headline in the Twin Falls Times from November 9th states, Prisoner not impressed with American justice. When the judge asked if he had anything to say, Arthur, quote, made quite a speech. He seemed to think that he was not convicted because he was an educated man. The prisoner also tried to show the judge that he did not live beyond his income, stating that he had lived in the United States for four years and had only bought one suit of clothes, end quote. The judge patiently listened and sentenced Arthur to not less than one year nor more than 14 years in the Idaho State Penitentiary. The Logan Observer had a brief write-up noting that the, quote, only man who broke even in the shuffle with Charles Sparling, alias Charles Paul, end quote, was a reverend, Upton Gibbs, in, in Le Grand. And Arthur asked the reverend for $10 and received it. And he ended up leaving the reverend's house so quickly that he left his nice suitcase. And this actually has a little bit more biographical information. Maybe it's true. Quote, Mr. Sparling was at one time master of a well-known school near London, and his boys presented him with a pigskin suitcase, well-made and still in fine state of upkeep. When Mr. Sparling gets out of his present troubles, he will still be able to get his suitcase and dressing gown by calling at the Episcopal Rectory, end quote. So, A.L. Sparling, number 2363, was received November 10th, 1915, from Twin Falls for the crime of obtaining money under false pretenses, his sentence 1 to 14 years, age 33, born in Balcombe, England, occupation agriculturalist, height 5 foot 8 and 1 eighth inch tall, complexion light, weight 156 pounds, light brown hair, blue eyes. He was married, widower, and has one girl. His father died when he was 27 years old and his mother was still alive. He left home at the age of 16. He had religious instruction in the Episcopal Church, had collegiate education, and attended school for seven years. His nearest relative here was, he wrote, Twin Falls attorney Longley and Walters. His build was regular. He had good teeth, didn't wear a beard, wore a seven and a half size boot and a six and a quarter size hat. His parents were born in England. He entered the United States through SF, which I imagine is San Francisco. He lived in Idaho for six months before the crime occurred. His Bertian was taken the next day and showed a one-and-a-half-inch scar above his left eye, three vaccination scars on his left arm, an operation scar with a puncture just to the left side of his groin. Now, Arthur's lawyers immediately went to work appealing his case, and he applied for a pardon in the springboard, but was quickly denied. The British consul in Portland, Oregon, H.E. Sherwood, actually requested a thorough investigation into Arthur's case. So there's that kind of connection, but I couldn't find that uh, he actually worked for Sherwood or knew him beyond just being a British citizen. During the October board meeting, a tailor from Weezer named John E. Warren actually came to Boise on Arthur's behalf. He knew Arthur and his wife and child and felt that Arthur never intentionally meant to defraud the woman from Twin Falls. John collected signatures and actually presented the plea on Arthur's behalf to the board. 
quote, a more fluent plea than he made has seldom been heard by the board, end quote. So he must have had quite the impassioned speech. The Idaho statesman called Arthur a magazine man and noted that Arthur was more widely known for writing for farm papers and magazines under the name Charles A. Paul. He was pardoned from the prison October 5, 1916, 10 months. He immediately filed for a retrial with the Idaho Supreme Court, hoping he would be able to vindicate if the higher court read his trial transcript. He filed them personally to the 4th Judicial District in Twin Falls. Life after prison. Well, it was pretty interesting for Arthur. He actually wrote another speech that he presented at the Penny Theater in downtown Boise on November 14, 1916. So a month later, he's in front of 250 people, or 200, depending on what newspaper you read, at the Penny Theater. And basically, the journalist uh, wrote down roughly what he said. Um, and it began with a discussion on the bug house in the evening Capitol News, saying that the prisoners were placed in the bug house, quote, for most trivial offenses and left there from 10 to 30 days, according to the dictates of the warden, and have been carried out upon blankets, being too weak to walk, end quote. Idaho statesman had a different take on Arthur's speech, mostly that he only spoke to 200 people and, quote, failed to spring any sensations concerning the management of the institution, end quote. So the Evening Capital News definitely supports what he's saying, very progressive newspaper, and the Idaho statesman is the more conservative um, supporting the prison. The bug house was the second form of solitary confinement after the dungeon in the southwest corner in the 1890 cell house, and it was described by Arthur as, quote, a steel cage with rings in the steel wall for the purpose of holding a man by chains, which were not usually used. When a man is placed in the bug house, his clothes, except for underclothes, are as a rule taken from him, and he gets two meals a day, each consisting of two slices of bread and a mug of water, end quote. Arthur insisted that it wasn't the warden's fault that the bug house had been used for many years before Warden Snook, and the journalist noted that Arthur didn't make any personal criticisms, but approached the topic from a humanitarian standpoint and made this earnest plea for change so that the men, quote, might be enlightened and taught the better things in life rather than being punished by confinement and turned out more hardened than before they entered, end quote. That sounds like the philosophy we still have in corrections today. But Arthur called for the warden to be a little bit more like a teacher who educates each student in the way that they learn best and not the sheriff or military man who exacts obedience through fear. He acknowledged the Salvation Army and religious services that came and helped the men of the prison for a few hours every Sunday, but asked how a society which forced every child to go to school and learn to read and write not provide these tools for men in prison, who he noted many of them were illiterate. He wanted more educational opportunities to be offered in the prison, and he understood that, you know, punishment is essential, but betterment should be the goal and motivation of all prisons. He insisted that during his 10 months in the prison, he never once saw a guard strike a prisoner, and he said that most of the guards were actually decent men. The only time he heard of any abuse of power happening, it was done by newly appointed guards who were still learning the ropes, which we, we still hear today in like those uh, heavy badges mm -hmm. for new rookie guards. I just was going to say, I could definitely get behind everything that he's saying, um, and it feels quite progressive for the time. Yeah. So... 
very cool. It's really fascinating. It's really cool. And so many people to show up and listen to him talk about this. This, you know, this guy who's been out of prison for one month and people are coming and spending their money to come listen to him speak. He also discussed the issue of politics with the pardon board, which consisted of two Republicans and one Democrat at the time. Quote, the wise ones at the prison always played the two Republicans against the Democrat, which usually resulted in their getting out, end quote. And that, you know, that's something that you see throughout the prison's history. It is a political appointed body. So he closed the speech by talking about the condition of his cell, which he said was riddled with bugs. Quote, I have gone out to the front office and have shown the warden himself my arms covered with the bites of bed bugs and asked for another cell, end quote. And I could just imagine Warden John Snook just like nodding and like pointing at the door and like just sending him back to his cell. <laughs> Quote, but it is so bad that exaggeration is impossible. The system of open buckets should also be abolished. You cannot reform a man by degrading him in his own estimation. End quote. Of course, this is in regards to the lack of plumbing in these early cell houses and the honey bucket system that was in use until, you know, the South Wing, number three house, was finally opened in the late 1920s. So, I mean, what he's saying is, is all legitimate concerns and... Uh, you know, Warden John Snook was pretty hard-headed, and he heard about the speech and quickly went to the papers and defended the bug house. He actually told the Idaho Statesman journalists that the bug house cells were in a frame building in the prison yard and had been used for 20 years. Quote, it is not agreeable to be confined in them and is not intended that it should be. Prisoners are put there for serious infractions of the rules only, end quote. Warren Snook continued by saying that prisoners in the bug house were given blankets during the winter and noted that there was a school running and, quote, the textbooks have been purchased, end quote. Another write-up appeared in the newspaper shortly after, this time actually by the prisoners of the institution who defended the prison in a letter to Warren Snook that was printed in the Idaho Statesman. Now, uh, let me just kind of flip through this to the important parts, because that is a very, very long letter talking about everything in prison life there. It's, it's actually really fascinating. Uh, but basically, they open up by saying, you know, we, the undersigned, known as the executive committee of the inmates of this institution, desire to express to you our sentiment in direct refutation of certain unjust and malicious statements delivered by a former inmate of this penitentiary before an audience at the Penny Theater on Wednesday last. And the reason for submitting this letter is based upon the sincere desire to correct, insofar as may be within our capabilities, any impressions which may have been created that reflect discredibility on the prison or you personally by the untruthful reports circulated. We cannot agree with number 2363 that a man must remain in the bug house until you may feel inclined to release him. Because we know for a positive fact that any man so punished is given an opportunity in from one to five or six days to come out of bugs, provided he shall acknowledge his wrongs and promise better future conduct. We also know that any man put in bugs has violated some rule, and that in a place of this character or any other similar institution, authority must be maintained. We further know that there are no rings or other attachments for a stringing of a man up as a punishment, and that men going into bug house are allowed sufficient clothing and blankets to ensure them from exposure which might result in sickness. 
Tis true that bug house is not as comfortable as a cell, but of what avail would it be were not some punishment attached to same? They go through the textbooks and they write literally basically what their library contains, which is like, you know, 36 books on arithmetic, 12 books on architecture and building, 50 biographies, you know, 52 encyclopedias, 50 volumes of the classics, 12 volumes on practical electricity, 2,500 assorted volumes, um, you know, all these different things, uh, a bunch of history books, 24 books on history, um, 12 books on law. So they list like, look, there's plenty for us to read out here. Why, why is he saying that there's nothing out here? While education is not at present compulsory, those men who desire to elevate themselves educationally can go to school, where an inmate acting as instructor is available to help them. We have observed that the more intelligent men here take up some of the technical studies by securing the books requisite from the library. After investigating the alleged lack of facilities for the advancement of the uneducated man, we cannot agree with number 2363 that no provision is made for the men to benefit themselves educationally, should they so desire. Further on, they talk about his complaints about the bed bug experiences, and he said that there are other men that have lived in the same cell house for years who don't ever complain or experience the same thing. This is explained by the fact that these men differed from 2363 in that they did, once in a while, use a scrubbing brush, a mop, some soap, hot water, and kerosene in cleaning up their cells, which they would whitewash them. Had 2363 taken the pains with his boudoir that any man who appreciates cleanliness should, he would have eliminated these travelers, as vermin of any description will not remain in healthy or cleanly sites. <laughs> and, and so basically, if he had been cleaning and doing his due diligence, he wouldn't have been uh, covered in bed bugs. Also, kerosene. Um, How are they using kerosene to clean without just lighting things on fire? I've never heard of kerosene as, as something you use to clean. <clears throat> Right. Yeah, I have no idea. And then they kind of close with like, you know, our opinion of a prison is that it's an institution for the punishment of a man for his wrong acts, as well as a place for the correction of his moral delinquencies. Such men as leave this penitentiary and thereafter indulges in the practice of oratory or of a malicious or anarchistic character have not, in our opinion, been corrected morally, and we here regret greatly that one of the accredited intellectuality of number 2363 should exhibit such tendencies as is not in unreasonable condition for us to believe that society may judge us all as malcontents and persons of undesirable traits. When one from among us appears before the public in the radical manner of our former fellow inmate, from remarks passed by men here who have been in other prisons, it strikes us that this penitentiary is considered by those who really know what they are talking about as the easiest in the country to make good or get along in. Trusting that you will accept this letter in the spirit which has prompted its accomplishment and that you will further accept our respectful recognition of the manliness you have demonstrated in disciplinary action to our respective requirements, we are, sir, very respectfully... Arthur Cornell, Fred Lane, W.F. Triplett, Frank High, and Fred Coleman. End 
quote. So it's this really long letter in defense of the prison system and basically saying, like, maybe that guy wasn't reformed enough to be released from prison if he's going to go and badmouth the prison. <laughs> in uh, December, prominent Boiseans actually gathered in the mezzanine of the Hawaii Hotel to establish an organization to improve the conditions of the prison, all because of A.L. Sparling's speech. The guests included Mayor S.H. Hayes, Judge Carl Davis, doctors, including one who was the president of the Idaho Society for the Friendless, which worked with the prisoners quite a bit, reverends, bishops, Leo J. Falk, and, of course, Arthur Sparling. In January 1917, so just a few months after he's been out of prison, an article noted that the incorporation papers of the Hepner Loan and Improvement Company and the Hepner Creamery and Cold Storage Company had been revoked. So finally, that whole chapter is basically over for Arthur, and now he's on to a new, bigger and better thing here in Boise, um, improving the condition of the prison and speaking about it for, you know, about, probably about 25 cents a ticket. In March, Arthur was again on stage at the Columbian Club rooms with former Mayor Arthur Hodges and Charles Clifton discussing municipal ownership, or basically government-regulated electric and water systems and utility services. At the end of the month, Mayor S.H. Hayes spoke at the Penny Theater to a large crowd revealing his hopes and plans for the city moving forward, and he discussed the need for the police department to be considered almost like a hospital and equipped with all this like modern medical equipment to help people. And then he discussed women sex workers in the city, who at this time were basically just driven out of town if they were caught. And he was also developing with the Boise Police Department new systems, quote, to reform the offender rather than driving her around to some other place, end quote. He gave credit to Captain Barnes for her aid in these cases. He then discussed the municipal ownership question, said there wasn't, you know, a viable way for the city to take this on at the time without proper investigation into its viability. To close of the speech, Arthur actually raised his hand and asked about the utilities question again, and Mayor Hayes, he didn't have a very good response. So Arthur replied, quote, you, Mr. Mayor, seemed to have no platform at all, except your police record. It seems to me that you were trying to ride into the mayor's chair on Captain Barnes' bonnet strings, end quote. Mayor Hayes responded, quote, I thought my work along this line would particularly appeal to you, Mr. Sparling, for it was the use of such advanced methods that released you from the penitentiary, end quote. And the place erupted in pandemonium, and <laughs> everybody was just jeering and laughing, and uh, it took several minutes for it to die down, and then Arthur tried to have a rebuttal, but everybody hissed at him, and like, tried to kick him out of the place. So, undeterred. Arthur continued to meet and speak at the Columbian Club, presenting talks with mayoral candidate Charles Clifton, one talk that was called Who is Getting Your Money, and another called Shall We Own Our Own Water Plant? That's pretty much it. The last mention I could find of A.L. Sparling came from an arrival at the Hotel Moscow in July 1917, so later that summer. Then the sale of land to R.D. Welch in September 1919 followed with a mention in October 1919 that uh, A.L. Sparling was delinquent for sales tax of, from selling his land, and he owed $31.56 to the state of Idaho. And that, folks, is it. I could not find anything else on this guy. There's so much leading up to it, and then he just ups and vanishes 
There's one write-up I found uh, from 1918 by a guy named Charles Paul, and it's basically a collection of poetry to Woodrow Wilson's wife talking about soldiers. It's such a, a strange collection of poetry, and at the introduction, it says that Charles Paul is mostly known for writing about agriculture, so I believe that may be his, but... Other than that, I I honestly have no idea what happened to him, who his wife and child were, if he in fact had a wife and child, uh, or honestly, anything else. He just kind of disappears. That's really interesting because he had such a public profile. That's really odd that he just totally disappeared. I think, I don't know if maybe he went to Canada, if he went back to England, did he go back to Australia? Mm. He just vanishes. And for somebody who loved the spotlight and loved being up on stage, you know, I thought for sure I would find him in, in another city doing the same thing and starting another hustle. But I I don't know what happened to him. Hmm. So if anyone has any ideas what happened to A.L. Sparling, number 2363, Please help us. <laughs> and we have had help on on the Facebook group. Uh, I've, you know, put out calls for people uh, who could find death records and stuff like that. And we have been getting responses. So that information is available uh, somewhere, maybe not to us. But if you are in the position to look that up, uh, we definitely would appreciate your help. It, it is so helpful in, in filling out the rest of their stories. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you for staying through that. So yeah. I, it's not the most fascinating story, I will say. It's not, you know, it's a sexy like, story. Yeah, like, but it's kind of boring. Like, I don't mean the story, like you didn't tell it in a boring way, but like, it's the subjects that he's dealing with other than like the prison reform are kind of boring. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. And that, you know, finding that his speech is at the penny, that was what turned me on to him. Yeah. You know, I want to know more about this guy. Mm-hmm. And then... I spent so many hours that I I just had to tell you everything I found. Usually I try to be a little bit better about like (laughs) cutting it down, but maybe someone can can figure out or or knows more about this guy and we can figure out what his true identity was. No, no, but that was really good because I remember the preliminary research I did and it was just like, I don't don't understand what this guy's story is. Like, he's maybe in Australia, he's maybe in London. I can't understand Uh how he got here. Um, So yes, well done in putting all of that together. Oh, thanks, Guy. What do you have for us today, Scott? Well, let me turn on my headlamp. All right. <laughs> so um, I am talking about number 8337 K. Goddard. Uh, so sources for today in her inmate file, newspapers.com records, ancestry.com records, maladidaho.org, history of Oneida County, uh, a an article titled Tiny U.S. Towns, Big Welsh Heritage from BBC News from yeah. 2005, an article titled Utahns by 90% of Idaho's Lottery Tickets by Lee Davidson of the Salt Lake Tribune from 2012, 
welshfestival.com, coneyisland.com, movies released in 1951 on the-numbers.com, October 1951 movies on moviephone.com, and then Wikipedia articles uh, of Malad, Idaho, Benjamin Bonneville, Camp Connor, State of Deseret, Coney Island, and then for several movies, and for the movies, I also looked them up on IMDb, and those movies are Coming Around the Mountain, Two of a Kind, The Desert Fox, Best of the Bad Men, Fortunes of Captain Blood, and The Fuller Brush Girl, and I'll get into all of that. So we're actually going to start a little bit unconventionally today. We're going to start the episode with the history of Malad, Idaho, and that is because her crime actually takes place in Twin Falls, Actually, around a very similar time as uh, the last woman that we covered who committed her crime in Twin Falls. And so instead of doing the newspaper thing that I've done the last several times, I wanted to start uh, where she was born because um, Malad, Idaho is so much more fascinating than I expected. Uh, yeah. As I said, you know, Malad is in Oneida County. We don't have any female inmates from there, so I would never get to talk about this otherwise. And doing the research, I was like, oh, this is such a, an interesting little place. So Oneida County is on the border of Utah, with Malad itself just 10 miles from the Utah border. As such, it is perhaps obvious to conclude that the town was founded by members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in 1854. But let's start with its earliest history. The area was ancestral lands of the Shoshone-Bannock tribes, who probably also had regular contact with northern Ute tribes from the south. Major white contact in what is now the Malad Valley came in the form of French-Canadian fur traders from the Northwest Company, led by Donald Mackenzie between 1818 and 1821. From these fur traders came the name of the valley, Malad, which in French means sick or sickly. Original assumptions about this name are that passing trappers were made sick after drinking local water, either because it was too alkaline, so it didn't, it didn't absorb in their bodies the same, or because it was tainted by animals in some way. So according to information from Idaho's Malad Valley by Thomas J. McDevitt, uh, and unfortunately I couldn't find a copy of this book, it was cited on Wikipedia, so I took that citation, and so it is from the book. But the, the theory is that trappers, uh, so if it wasn't from the water, the other theory is that the trappers had eaten beavers for some meals, and local beavers ate the roots of water hemlock trees, which puts the poisonous psychotoxin in their systems. The beavers themselves would have been immune to the poison because of adaptation buildup, and local American Indian tribes had learned to prepare beaver meat in ways that deactivated the poison, but European trappers had not learned those same tricks. So regardless of what it was that made them sick, the area is called Malad because some French fur trappers did not have a good time there. Then, Jim Bridger of the Rocky Mountain Fur Company may have guided explorer Captain Benjamin Bonneville in 1832 to the area. The first white settlers came in 1854, about seven years after pioneers began settling in the Salt Lake Valley. Settlement in Malad Valley was led by the Waldron family, who were LDS converts from England. In 1855, President Brigham Young visited southern Idaho, which he reported was full of good grass and wheat lands to try to encourage settlement there. This was probably part of Young's attempt to build up a state of Deseret, even though the actual state of Deseret had been dissolved in 1850 after the establishment of the Utah Territory. So for those of you who don't remember, I talked about this in our live episode from last season, that the state of Deseret was uh, Brigham Young's idea 
prior to the state of Utah. He actually wanted it to encapsulate much, uh, much larger area than uh, Utah eventually became. Uh, and so he was sort of always constantly looking for nearby places to include in the state of Deseret. Then in 1856, a colony of 15 families led by Ezra Barnard came to Malad Valley and established Fort Stewart. Uh, that area came to be known as Malad City in 1857. Understandably, conflicts with local tribes drove most settlers back to Utah in 1860. Then in 1864, several men and boys from Utah returned and began settling Malad City Township. That same year, Oneida County was founded, named that, because several settlers of the Malad Valley were from Oneida Lake, New York. Soda Springs, which again I talked about in that live episode, was originally named the county seat, though Malad became the county seat in 1866 because of its burgeoning population. Malad became a boom town after the Ben Holiday stage line passed through both for freight and stage passengers between Salt Lake City and gold mines in Montana. By 1886, Malad was the fastest growing town in eastern Idaho. In 1906, the railroad reached Malad from Salt Lake City, making it only a four-hour journey from the center of the LDS universe to Malad. And in the following 15 years after the railroad was built, the population doubled. On June 19, 1910, an earthen dam northeast of Malad broke, and the town of Malad was flooded. And this is from an oral history from a resident named Arthur Williams, and he reveals that he noticed the water breaking up the earth and immediately drove to, into town to tell as many people as he could. And this is a quote from his oral history. Quote, When I got to the city, I met D.L., who was coming from his home to the old co-op store. As I rode down the road, he said, Start hollering that the Deep Creek Reservoir is coming. When I got to the big bridge by the Chevy Garage, right there I started hollering that the water was coming. You ought to see the people running. They went way up there on that hill there. It didn't widen out very far. It would have done a lot more damage than it did. It split into two parts. One part went down the old creek bed, and the other went straight down. If it had come at the same time, it would have filled every store in town. It filled all the basements of the south side of town anyhow. It was quite the thing, all right. End quote. Wow. So Malad City has had some really interesting claims to fame throughout the years. According to a BBC article from 2005, Malad claims to have more people of Welsh descent than anywhere outside of Wales. And many settlers were, as I mentioned, LDS and even RLDS, which is the reorganized Latter-day Saints convert from Wales. So until 1916 and the U.S. entry into World War I, Malad held an annual Eisteddfod, which is a Welsh festival, and that featured music, songs, and traditional storytelling of Wales. In 2004, the annual Malad Valley Welsh Festival was established in an attempt to renew the old Eisteddfod tradition in Malad. And so this last year, in 2022, it was held June 24th through the 26th and included lectures about Wales, family history displays, music entertainment, poetry readings, tours of historic sites. Overall, it seems like a really fun time. And Wales is, is such an interesting country. There was a lot of talk about it, actually, on this World Cup. The U.S. played Wales in in their group. And, you know, there's this assumption that Wales is just part of England. It is not. It's very different. So uh, it's really cool that they have this this festival to celebrate that that heritage that a lot of people in Malad claim. So, yeah, cool little tradition there. I think I've already talked about this, but my family converted uh, Latter-day Saints mm. in, in Wales and were part of the, I think, the fourth wagon oh, cool. hand carts yeah. from, from the East Coast all the way to Cedar City, Utah. That's so cool. that's how... I don't think, I, I don't think yeah, you have my, mentioned that. 
Great. I think that's so interesting. So another strange claim to fame that Malad has is that it has the second highest amount of sales for the Idaho lottery. It oh. it has nearly 20%, which is about $1 of every $5 spent on Idaho lottery games. Huh. So so $1 of every $5 spent on Idaho lottery games come from people from Utah. Okay. So, yeah, so that, because of the LDS dictates on gambling, Utah does not have a state lottery. So many Utahns cross the state border to buy lottery tickets. <laughs> So, um, according to an article from the Salt Lake Tribune from 2012, a Malad convenience store named Top Stop is the state's number one lottery outlet. And interestingly, the number two outlet is the quick stop across the street. In 2011, Malad sold more lottery tickets except for one other Idaho city, which was the capital, Boise. Because the Idaho lottery benefits Idaho public schools and Idaho's permanent buildings, Utahns contribute a significant amount to these funds, and for that, we must say thank you. And what's so interesting is they sell so many tickets without running any ads in Utah, which is actually banned by Utah law. (laughs) Uh, Uh, yeah. Yeah. There was also a report in 2003 that a nationwide influenza outbreak occurred, and Malad was one of the communities of the nation that was affected the greatest. The city was nearly shut down, and the Malad School District shut down for three days to try to mitigate the spread of flu, but nearly one-third of the students got sick anyway. Malad also once had the oldest department store in the state, with the Evans Co-op opening in 1865, and Malad also has the longest-running weekly newspaper in the state called the Idaho Enterprise, which first began in 1879. So now, the population is about 2,100 people, but the population in 1931, when our subject K was born, was about 2,500. So it's actually higher than it is now. So K. Goddard was born Laura K. Goddard on May 13, 1931 in Malad, to Martin and Laura Jones Goddard. Martin was a mechanic who worked for a gas company and eventually a bottling factory, and Laura Sr. was a housewife. Laura Jr. was the fourth of six kids. She had older sisters Trilva, who was five years older, Mary Lou, who was three years older, and Amelia Ruth, two years older. And then she had younger brothers Fred, who was three years younger, and John Martin, who was two years younger. So all of these kids are very, very close in age. The family was LDS, which is not surprising, given the religious makeup of Malad and much of southern Idaho. Then in 1941, the family moved to Salt Lake City, Utah, and Kay, Laura, I guess we'll just call her Kay because that's what she comes into the prison as, she attended school at West High School in Salt Lake City and started the 10th grade there. But she stopped attending West because she was sent to the Utah State Industrial School in Ogden in January 1946 for, quote, running away from home and staying out late at night, end quote. I don't think she was sent to this industrial school because she was criminal by any means. The only demerits she earned during her first six months were for, quote, talking with boys when she wasn't supposed to, for being too forward, and for being too boisterous and loud, end quote. So honestly, it just sounds like she's a teenage girl. While there, the authorities asked her about her home life, which she admitted was not too bad. Quote, she likes her parents and thinks they have treated her quite fairly, although she feels that her two brothers are somewhat favored. She likes her 18-year-old sister, who was married at the age of 16, but is now divorced. And this 18-year-old sister is Mary Lou, who was actually married at the age of 14. And so then this quote continues, she likes this sister because the sister would do things for her. It is felt by this worker that at least part of her delinquency was due to poor example for her by this next older sister. 
So her older sister, Trilva, who's at university, is not as well liked by Laura because this sister would not do things for her and was held up as an example of what she should be like, end quote. Officials of the school also said that she was likable, that she made friends easily, but she was much more of a follower than a leader. She was paroled from the Utah State Industrial School in August 1946, a couple weeks before she started 11th grade at West High School. Then three days into school, she was out with some friends and was maybe on a date at the local skating rink when she saw a woman's wallet unattended on a bench and she took it. This wallet had some papers and some keys, but no money. Several months later, her mother found the wallet at home and reported the theft to Kay's probation officer. The probation officer gave her a trial run. Basically, he said if Kay behaved herself for four weeks, including going out only for two nights a week, she would not have to return to the state industrial school. Which seems pretty fair to me. Again, she's a teenage girl, and, and the, the probation officer seems to, you know, acknowledge that she does still want to go out and have a good time. But, you know, if she could kind of rein herself in, then, then she'll be good. But it seems like on the first week, she went out four times in the week, so she had to return to Ogden in December 1946. It seems that while she was at the state industrial school, she continued to struggle, but in her defense, she was in a completely strictly regimented school at an age where all we want to be is the least regimented as possible. We all know as teenagers how we feel when our parents tell us you can't do this and you can't do that. And yeah. she even ad admitted as much. She said, quote, I don't like it here, especially, but you just have to learn to like it. I think it has done me some good, end quote. One supervisor said in July 1947, quote, I think Laura is trying harder now than ever before. The thing we've had with Laura is that extremely loud talk. She is boisterous and rough, but I don't believe she's breaking any big rules that I know of. I think she is a lot better, end quote. Another supervisor said, quote, I believe she's a lot better than she used to be. You ask her to do something and she does it. She's more polite and is trying. That's something, end quote. <sighs> but by December 1947, about a little more than six months later, her behavior had changed. A report noted that she'd added five days to her stay at the school for smoking at the school several times, two days for stealing hose, which presumably means pantyhose, two days for poor attitude and extreme messiness at the table, three days for taking vinegar and grapefruit juice from the kitchen, which hopefully she wasn't consuming. That sounds disgusting. But she did receive one day back for admitting that she had taken those things. And all of these things that she got extra days for was just in the month of November. At that point, a supervisor said that her attitude was poor and she wasn't really making any effort to change. They said, quote, I just don't know about Laura Kay. She does volunteer for extra work. I can say that much for her. Her room, as a rule, is kept up all right. One morning, I thought she was so willing to take another girl's place and I just turned my back and she called the other girl an S of a B for not doing it, end quote. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> so she kind of, her attitude is just changing just a little bit. The next report came in March 1948, which stated she had been attending school, but after writing an obscene note, she had been denied the privilege of attending school, which was very hard on her because, quote, she likes school here very much, end quote. Her supervisor said that, quote, until the last few months, Kay has been perfectly content with the situation, has made no effort to change her predicament, end quote. And it wasn't until a good friend of hers was released that Kay realized she would have to change her attitude so that she could leave too and thus begin changing her attitude. Kay stated that when she left the school, she wanted to take a beauty course or uh, attend a course or two at business school. 
But a worker took Kay for a home visit where they visited with Kay's mother and her sisters. And the worker said, quote, the tone of this conversation was how much Kay could help her sister, but not once did they mention what Kay would gain from such an arrangement. Kay was not consulted. Everything seemed to be arranged. We talked about the possibility of Kay living at the school and attending beauty school in Ogden for three months and then transferring to Salt Lake City. Her mother didn't agree to this idea. Later, Kay told workers that her father felt her sister would gain more from Kay's help than Kay would gain from beauty school. It is this worker's opinion that her family isn't giving her a chance, but are exploiting her for their own purposes, end quote. But ultimately, it was decided that Kay was ready to be released. Quote, I think Laura Kay is trying, and I think she has made a lot of improvement. She is clean and quiet and uses initiative. She is, however, easily led, end quote. And again, another supervisor, quote, she was excellent for work, is brilliant along the sewing line. She's just outstanding. She's easily influenced and can be talked into anything, inclined to be loud. Her mind is a little bit on the dark side. She responds well. If I were going to take a girl into my home, she would be the one I would take, end quote. Her parole date was set for April 1948. However, she was not given parole for a reason that I could not find. Then on December 12, 1948, the Salt Lake Tribune reported that two girls from the Utah State Industrial School had escaped from the Salt Lake General Hospital. And as you can guess, one of those young women was Kay, along with a friend named May Wing. And you may be wondering, why was she in the hospital? Well, she wasn't. She and May were, quote, transferred temporarily to the hospital under custody to appear as state witnesses in a burglary and grand larceny case, end quote, which was related to the theft of a safe from the Havana Club in Salt Lake City two months prior. The two girls were picked up by Salt Lake City police, and understandably, she remained in the state industrial school through 1949, even after she turned 18 years old. She was granted parole about a year later in January 1950, probably because at this point she was almost 19 years old and uh, probably couldn't have stayed in the industrial school for youth too much longer. But then, in April 1951, Kay was in Boise and was arrested and sentenced to 10 days in jail for vagrancy, and this was obviously a parole violation, and yet again, she was returned to Ogden. On September 22, 1951, she had gained trustee status and was working off of the main campus in North Ogden when a young man named Sam Beck drove up and asked her to get into the car. This Sam Beck, his full name was Samuel Ulrich Beck. He was born in February 1931 in Draper, Utah. He had served in the Utah State Industrial School at the same time as Kay until he escaped in January 1948 and stole, according to the Salt Lake Telegram, quote, at least four automobiles and raided larders at the Murray High School cafeteria and an unidentified Salt Lake County residence. Murray officials said that two 17-pound hams, several loaves of bread, and some carrots were stolen, end quote. Oh, no. So, I mean, if you're going to steal stuff, you steal a car to get away, and then you steal the food to keep you uh, supplied for a couple days. Jeez. Which, hopefully those hams were cooked, unless you're just eating raw ham, which sounds gross. That reminds me of the uh, Allens. Mm -hmm. uh, Mary and Arthur Allens totally. stealing the ham. Totally. <laughs> Um, so Sam was charged with second degree burglary and, uh, he served at the Utah state prison for three years. I am not exactly sure how Kay and Sam knew each other. I think the safest bet is that they met while at the Utah state industrial school, but she herself never says how they met. And I don't know how the dynamics of the school in Utah worked. So I'm not sure how often the girls and boys interacted, but this seems to be that main sort of link they have in common. 
According to an article in the Ogden Standard Examiner, when Sam drove up and asked her to get in the car, Kay was just five days away from the end of her term at the state industrial school. But regardless, Sam Beck drove up, asked her to get in the car, she got into the car, and off they went. They first drove to Logan, Utah, home of Utah State, Aggies all the way. Kay says <laughs> that they were drinking. They continued driving north, first into Idaho. Then they stopped in Livingston, Montana, where Sam stole a new license plate for the car. Then they started driving east, where they stopped in Casper, Wyoming, and burglarized their first house, stealing $1,360 in $20 bills, which is a lot of money. Um, yeah. And so from there, they went on a nationwide tour. Uh, <laughs> they first did some shopping in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Then they drove to Shop. Omaha, Nebraska, and stayed there for about a week. From Omaha, they went to Des Moines, Iowa, then Davenport, Iowa, stopped overnight in Aurora, Illinois, then drove to Chicago, and then on to New York. They camped out at Coney Island for about 10 days, from October 14th to October 21st. Now, this is just a little tiny uh, rabbit hole, because I think Coney Island is such a fascinating place with such a fascinating history. So, to be brief, uh, Coney Island is technically a peninsula off of New York City, which also includes Brighton Beach and Manhattan Beach. So Manhattan Beach was and is still residential, whereas Brighton Beach in the late 1800s was kind of a resort town with casinos, restaurants, horse racing tracks, and vaudeville shows, among other forms of entertainment. In 1897, the first amusement park named Steeplechase opened, followed closely by Luna Park in 1903 and Dreamland in 1904. And these three amusement parks elevated Coney Island to the Coney Island that we tend to think of now. These amusement parks were so ahead of their time technologically. They were so, so popular, especially for like young people in New York City, especially uh, lower class workers, immigrants. Uh, it was a way to go have a vacation from the, uh, you know, humdrum and difficulties of their normal lives without having to really leave their homes uh, or go very far. And these amusement parks literally put on the razzle-dazzle. They used electricity at night, which in the early 1900s was just incredible. They included mechanical roller coasters and other rides, as well as live animals, boardwalk games, and even Nickelodeon showings. And Nickelodeons were short one-reel movies. They were popular between 1907 and 1915, called Nickelodeons because it cost usually five cents to get in. And then Coney Island visitors could also visit the beaches, and so that's another reason it was very popular. Coney Island was also uh, a really great place for these young Americans and immigrants to start exploring new sexual politics that are going on in the early 1900s. So they are experimenting with what new interactions between men and women they can start to get away with and um, challenge uh, old Victorian ideals. Starting in 1915, the New York subway extended a line out to Coney Island, and Coney Island became, again, one of the biggest attractions in the city through the 1940s. And again, especially popular for young immigrant and working class men and women, because even a small amount of money could buy you an entire day of play. By the 1950s, when Kay and Sam were spending some time there, all of the parks had suffered from fires, with Dreamland burning down completely in 1911, and Luna Park had been destroyed by a fire in 1944. Steeplechase was still open, and the beaches, of course, were still open, but a lot of the storefront amusements and concession stands of the boardwalk had started to be replaced by residential developments. So you may be wondering, you know, even if you don't need a lot of money, you do need some money. So how did they fund this excursion? Well, you can probably guess 
it's because they stole. What? Yeah. <laughs> Shocking. So while at Coney Island, according to Kay, they burglarized about three homes on Manhattan Beach, stealing money, clothes, jewelry, and U.S. savings bonds worth about $350. And while they had been in Chicago, they had stolen savings bonds worth $150. So then from Coney Island, they continue their nationwide tour. They drove to Washington, D.C., stopping in Annapolis, Maryland overnight. So then they go from Annapolis to Winchester, Pennsylvania, to Marietta, Ohio, to Breeze, Illinois, to St. Louis, Missouri, Jefferson City, Missouri, Kansas City, Missouri, Wichita, Kansas, Guyman, Oklahoma, Texoma, Oklahoma, Dalhart, Oklahoma. Then somewhere in Texas, the name they put down is a city that doesn't exist. The city they put down was Naradisa, N-A-R-A-D-I-S-A. Not a place. Then from Texas, Albuquerque, New Mexico, Gallup, New Mexico, Winslow, Arizona, Kingman, Arizona, Boulder City, Nevada, Las Vegas, Nevada, Elko, Nevada, Wells, Nevada, Twin Falls, Idaho, and then Boise, Idaho. Wow. Throughout this trip, Kay admitted to stealing rifles, cameras, binoculars, a typewriter, jewelry, and rolls of money, among several other things. Then they arrived back in Twin Falls on November 8th, 1951, about a month and a half after she first left the state industrial school. According to Kay herself, at around 6.30 p.m., the couple started cruising around the street and saw a house with no lights on. She went and knocked on the door, and in the process, the owners of the house came home. And she says of this, quote, I told them I wanted to try to locate my aunt and uncle. They let me go inside and use the phone, but I couldn't locate my aunt and uncle, end quote, for some reason. I don't know. Weird. Uh, then she went back to the car and the couple began cruising again. They found a second home with no lights on. Again, she knocked on the door and this time no one was home and no one came home in the process. And she says, quote, then Sam went into the house by means of going through a window. All he took from this house was a blanket, end quote. They cruised again and found a third home with no lights. Again, the homeowners came home while Kay and Sam were in the process of breaking in and they had to flee. Then, says Kay, they went and saw a quote-unquote picture show. They went to the movies. So, since this is my expertise, I did a little bit of digging to try to figure out what movie they might have gone to see. So, the, cool. the Times News from Twin Falls on November 8th showed advertisements for the following movies, so they had to have gone and seen one of these. The theater called The Idaho was playing a movie called Coming Round the Mountain, an Abbott and Costello movie where they, quote, get mixed up with hillbillies, witches, and love potions, end quote. Uh, <laughs> which sounds fun. Uh, that was it from, does. that was from Universal International Pictures. The theater, The Roxy, was showing two of a kind, a crime film from Columbia Pictures starring Edmund O'Brien and Elizabeth Scott about con artists Mike Farrell and Brandy Kirby who try to convince a rich couple that Farrell is their long lost son in order to inherit their $10 million estate. The Orpheum was playing The Desert Fox, starring James Mason, which was a biographical film about German Field Marshal Erwin Rommel during World War II from 20th Century Fox, which is interesting that they have it about a German. Then The Magic was showing Best of the Bad Men, an RKO Technicolor picture starring Robert Ryan and Claire Trevor, a Western set in Missouri just after the Civil War, centered around the real-life James Younger gang, which revolved around outlaw Jesse James and an actor named Lawrence Tierney played the infamous Jesse James. 
Finally, oh, cool. the local drive-in Motor View had a double feature. First was The Fortunes of Captain Blood, a Columbia Pictures pirate film from 1950 based on a 1922 novel, complete with, quote, daring sword fights, sensational sea battles, intrigue, and a vivacious love interest, end quote. Starring uh, British actor Louis Hayward, the second of that double feature was The Fuller Brush Girl, a 1950 slapstick comedy starring a name that everyone might be familiar with, Lucille Ball, who plays a, quote, hey. quirky door-to-door cosmetic saleswoman for the Fuller Brush Company, uh, end quote, and this was made by Columbia Pictures. In fact, this actually was one of the last movies that Lucille Ball made before I Love Lucy began in 1951. In fact, actually, the first episode of I Love Lucy had come out just about two weeks before this, on October 15th, 1951, while Kay uh, and and Sam were on in the midst of their nationwide tour. Uh, nice. That's awesome. Yeah, so Kay doesn't specify which movie they saw, but that little rabbit hole was very fun for me. So anyway, they stopped, they saw one of these movies, and as they were pulling away, they stopped at the first stop sign. And police approached them and told them to drive to the police station and, quote, we were put in jail overnight, end quote. The Times News from Twin Falls reported that the couple were caught because they had stopped at that very first house where the owner, W.W. Thomas, was a former policeman. Quote, Thomas came home Thursday evening and found the woman in the dark near his back porch at 1503 Poplar Street. She told him she was looking for a relative. Thomas wasn't able to help her find anyone of the name she gave. She told him she was going to the bus station. Thomas saw a car stop for her, became suspicious, and followed the car to obtain the license number, end quote. Police found four guns in the car, including a loaded twenty-five caliber automatic in Kay's purse. They also found a woman's wristwatch, earrings, a necklace, binoculars, cameras, and other jewelry and items. It turned out that the car with which they had been traveling around for nearly two months, a 1949 Ford sedan, had been borrowed without permission from Max Ewing, a police officer from Murray, Utah. So I don't know why they're just constantly accidentally getting involved with police officers. Oh, jeez. So the couple were held in the Twin Falls County Jail waiting to come before the judge on charges of first-degree burglary. About three weeks later, on November 28, 1951, both Kay and Sam pleaded guilty, not even asking for an attorney. But, according to the Times News, quote, Beck's only request was that he and Miss Goddard be married before the sentence is pronounced. Sheriff Jesse Carlton is considering the request, end quote. This request was granted, and Kay and Sam were married on December 5th, 1951, by Judge S.T. Hamilton after, quote, officers studied the request and saw no reason to refuse, end quote. Mm. They each received a 15-year sentence about a week later, and they entered the Idaho State Penitentiary on December 13th, 1951. So here is her intake form. So race, so we know, you know, name, Kay Goddard, uh, crime, burglary, first degree, sentence, 15 years, race, white, sex, female, height, 64 inches, she's about 5'4", weight, 105, age, 20, eyes, green, hair, light brown, complexion, light, and no military record. Now, it, does, it is important to note that she does have a hold. Uh, and what a hold means is when she is, when her sentence is up at Idaho, uh, the authorities elsewhere would like uh, to be alerted so that they can potentially um, bring her in uh, for crimes she committed. So she actually has a hold from Casper, Wyoming, which I'm assuming is for uh, the original uh, stealing of the license plate, I believe they did in Casper. So, no Bertillon, but another intake form says she has three tattoos. And as a heavily tattooed what? woman, I am dying to know what and where those tattoos were. 
Um, but yeah, there there just was no uh, Bertillon in in her file at all. Dang it, I want to know what they were. Dang. So, uh, Kay was one of only six women in the women's ward when she entered, including Grace Elizabeth Scott and Alwilda Reams, who I covered in the first episode of the season. She would also be quickly joined about two weeks later by another inmate, Ruth Seconder, who we haven't covered yet, but we will in a future season. After she entered prison, authorities sent a survey to her family asking about her early life and some other thoughts as to why she might have committed this crime. As a whole, her mother wrote that she had a quote-unquote normal childhood and relationship with her family. There was nothing that would indicate she would have been prone to do something like this. Her mother wrote, quote, The only thing I can understand why Kay did such a thing was all her last few years she's had an inferior complex for some reason. She lacks confidence in herself that she can do things and make something of herself. For the past few years, in order to overcome this complex, she has done anything anyone dared her to just to prove she was not afraid. I'm sure this has something to do with her having committed such a crime. It is hard for me to say just what the chief reason for her misconduct, because she has not been home for three or four months, and we know nothing of her association with the man with whom she committed this misconduct. It is hard for me to believe that Laura Kay would, would get such an extreme penalty, at least to get the same as the man, because she had never committed any crime before other than being delinquent, whereas the man had been in prison before, yet he drew the same length of committance. However, that was for the judge to decide. However, I do think that Laura Kay should be given some consideration, not because I am her mother, but because I know she will try to do everything she can to speed her chance of getting out or being paroled. She is a good girl, and I am sure she will cooperate to the utmost, end quote. <laughs> then on the back of the form was a letter from one of Kay's sisters, and the name is redacted in the file. Based on her previous statements about which sister she get along with, it's likely that it came from Mary Lou, uh, but obviously I can't say that for sure. And so this letter says, quote, I would like to tell you a little about Kay. Kay is a good girl, and I was very surprised to hear that she had been away and in so much trouble. Kay is the youngest of my sisters, and it is hard to understand why she would do such a thing. None of us have ever been in trouble, and we have been given everything that it was possible for our parents to give us. Mother works harder than she should every day so that we could have everything. When Kay was home, mother and dad did all they could to help her. They gave her money, bought her clothes, and so did all of the rest of us. Because deep down, she is a good girl, just has a complex of some sort. When she can overcome that and feel that is as good as everyone else, and that she can get a job and make something of herself, she will be as good a citizen as anyone else. She has been in the industrial school too long, had no feeling of security. But I do want to tell you that we all feel terrible about this, but we are willing to do everything possible to help and show that she still means the same to us, and that when she is released, that she has a place to come home to, and that we we will do all we can to help her adapt herself, end quote. So she has a really loving family, which I think is great. That is unfortunately sometimes uh, not the case. Uh, and as I mentioned, in June 1952, the Natrona County Sheriff's Office in Wyoming sent Warden Clapp a letter asking to be notified when she was released, as they wished to place a detainer on her once her sentence in Idaho was up for the burglary that she and Sam had committed in Casper. She did not have any punishment or violation of the rules while she was in the women's ward. She attended all of the religious services they had in the women's ward while she was there, and her institutional adjustment was considered satisfactory. So her pre-parole investigation, which again is an investigation that helped determine if her parole plan was acceptable, stated, quote, Prognosis is considered rather guarded, uncertain, somewhat doubtful. It is still felt that her husband does not have sufficient emotional maturity and stability with which to help her in making a good social adjustment, and the present outlook for both of them does not appear too good. 
She is not so positive at the present time as she was upon admission that she is going to stick by Sam through thick and thin through hell and high water. She remarked in a recent yeah. interview that she would wait and see how it all worked out in regard to her relationship with her husband following his release. Perhaps her attitude in that respect shows signs of improvement, end quote. Then on March 10th, 1953, she was granted parole, effective April 10th, 1953, of course, subject to good behavior. At this time, Warden Clapp wrote the Natrona County Sheriff's Office that she was about to be released. A week later, W.H. Bond, Natrona County Office Deputy, wrote Clapp back, informing him that the county attorney dropped the charges against Kay and Sam as well, saying, quote, We no longer want these people and hope they stay away from Casper from now on. We have more than enough of this class of people, end quote. <sighs> so she was indeed paroled on April 10th, 1953, and she served one year, four months, 11 days of a 15-year sentence. Her parole plan was to return to her family in Salt Lake City, hoping to find employment as a waitress or in a laundry. She intended to resume her relationship with Sam after his release, but she wasn't sure if it would work out. Sam at that time was working out at the Eagle Island Farm, and he was set to be released on parole on August 19, 1953. Then an article appeared in the Idaho Daily Statesman on August 2nd that Sam, with just 19 more days to serve, and another inmate, Donald Eugene Kitchen, escaped from Eagle Island and stole cars in Eagle, Garden City, Mountain Home, and Jerome. Police believe that Sam was headed to Salt Lake City where Kay was living again. After his escape, the Board of Correction revoked the commutation he was going to receive because of this escape. And he was actually received at the Colorado State Penitentiary on August 27, 1953, on a three-to-five-year sentence for burglary. And understandably, Idaho immediately placed a hold on him for when his sentence in Colorado was complete. He was returned to the Idaho State Penitentiary on August 25, 1955, and served another 13 months of his original charge as 8336 before he was retained as 9466 to serve time for his escape charge. Perhaps understandably, after all of this, Kay divorced Sam, though I could not find records as to when she did that. Kay returned to Utah and would live there for the rest of her life close to her family. Sadly, her younger brother, John, was killed on the streets of downtown Salt Lake City on Christmas morning, 1956. According to the Salt Lake Tribune, John and another man, Richard T. Maloney, had gotten into, quote, a scuffle following which the victim had fallen, end quote, and hit his head on two small pipes projecting from the sidewalk. Oh, and so John no. died from intracranial hemorrhage after hitting his head Come on Christmas, Christmas Day. Ah. Yeah. That's heartbreaking. Yeah. So Richard Maloney was charged with involuntary manslaughter, killing John, quote, without malice, end quote. Oh. So the next I found of Kay was when the Salt Lake Tribune reported that Laura Kay Goddard and Edward Lee Corwell had been granted a marriage license in Elko, Nevada on December 11th, 1968. According to her obituary, the couple had six kids, three sons and three daughters. There was also a brief clipping in the Salt Lake Tribune in July 1986, which briefly detailed her job as a quote-unquote grader, G-R-A-D-E-R, at the Utah Roses Incorporated, where roses, quote, were sold to wholesalers and to consumers through the company's retail shop in Sandy, end quote. So uh, she uh, had an affinity for flowers and, uh, you know, graded, I think, these uh, roses for quality before... Uh, they went out to people who bought them. So lastly, the last thing I found is her obituary after she passed away on April 8th, 2004, and she was 73 years old at the time of her death. 
And so I will leave you with, with a line from her obituary, which I feel like is an appropriate ending to this story. And it says, quote, she had many good friends that she cared for and loved. Thank you. End quote. Oh. Um, and so that is number 8337, K. Goddard. Nice. Yeah. A complete story. That was yes. great. <laughs> quite the uh the trip across the united states i know um, i mean that's a that's a like a dream trip for law-abiding citizens you know what i mean yeah serious but yeah she was uh this was a really interesting one to to research so well great work you did you did a ton i learned a lot Thanks. and i i you know anytime you can talk about lucille ball oh. i'm i am here for it we love lucille ball <laughs> that's right and uh, and as a plug to the to the research i did so after i love lucy there was a an hour-long show that she and desi did called the lucy desi comedy hour they actually filmed an episode in sun valley like they show her ice skating she supposedly skis but they have obviously a double do that um for her but <sighs> but it was a very fun episode to watch so um you can just find it online so if you can find it, highly recommend watching. It's a fun, fun little watch to see Lucille Ball, you know, be Lucille Ball just on the ski slopes of Sun Valley. So anyway. Great work, Sky. Well, that was fun. Thanks. Thank you. Good uh, to have you back you. again. And uh, yeah, a couple more episodes be before we're all finished. That's right. All right, everybody. Thanks for, for listening and uh, do your own time. Do your own number. We'll see you next week. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Not only do we get to hear your feedback about the show, but it helps others find us as well. If you're interested in finding out more about the podcast and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, follow our Facebook group at Behind Gray Walls Podcast. We have a podcast Instagram as well. You can find us on Instagram at Behind Gray Walls Pod.